This is Alex Mears, and welcome to Recon Labs Search and Acquire podcast, where we speak with veterans who have successfully transitioned from the military into owning and serving as CEOs in small businesses that they've acquired. Unlike traditional startup entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship through acquisition or search funds allow early and mid-career entrepreneurs to acquire and operate an existing small business. Our goal with this podcast is to share lessons learned from the many successful veteran searchers and entrepreneurs who have gone before you on this journey. And today we are hosting Aaron Kinsey, a former Air Force pilot who successfully leveraged his background as a pilot to search for and acquire American patrols, a provider of aerial services to the oil and gas industry in Texas. Aaron shares some great tips on the importance of capturing all the tribal knowledge inside former owners and employees' heads into repeatable systems, on what happens when the relationship with the seller can go south after the acquisition, and best practices around making a partnered search work. Aaron is a graduate of Texas A&M, where he was the deputy commander of the Corps of Cadets and served nine years as an Air Force pilot. Aaron then attended Harvard Business School, and following graduation, he returned to Texas to lead a commercial real estate company before partnering to form Bear Capital and acquiring American Patrols. Aaron, thanks again for joining us today. To get started, could you give us a little background about yourself, where you grew up, and then how you decided to ultimately serve in the military? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Alex. It's uh, a privilege to be here and get the opportunity to talk to you, tell my story, and hopefully help out some um, some other vets coming behind wanting to do the same type of stuff. Uh, my background is I grew up in the Dallas area um, on the east side and then in a uh, small town in the country, first generation to go to college. Went to Texas A&M, was in the Corps of Cadets there. Actually wanted to go into business, wanted nothing to do. Really with the military, you can go be in the Corps there and not join the military. But 9-11 happened my uh, sophomore year, uh, which was obviously a, uh, a big event uh, for a college kid. Um, and then I still hadn't made my mind up even then. Just was still planning on going to be a CPA or something and then just kept filling my heartstrings, be tugged to, to going and serving. So I decided to do that instead. Senior year, picked up a scholarship and finished out all the like business undergrad and uh, first go of grad school uh, work and then commissioned into the Air Force. And what did you end up doing in the Air Force? Yeah, so in the Air Force, I was a C-130 pilot for about four years. And then I uh, taught pilot training on the T-1, which is the Beach Jet 400. And then finished up my career um, teaching the instructor course on the same aircraft. And can you talk a little bit about your transition out of the military? You know, how you decided ultimately to leave the military and then what, what those first steps were uh, after transitioning? Yeah, I didn't have a great plan, to be honest with you, uh, which I don't recommend. I um, moved to my final duty station in March of 2014, decided the Air Force was paying people, pilots, to get out at that point. I uh, volunteered to leave in April and found out I got selected in May and had to be out by September. Had no plan, no idea what I was going to do. Never considered V school or anything. I really had no idea. All, all I knew was that I wasn't going to go to the airlines. <laughs> I'd made that determination. <laughs> and then it was like, figure it out. So, um yeah, I don't recommend going into that without too much of a plan. So, so what what did you do uh, starting starting in September after you got out? Yeah, so well that summer I went to eat with a guy that I had gone to college with and kept in touch with occasionally, but 
we li- we were living in the same city at that point. And he was like, Hey, you're going to go to B school. I'm like, no, I'm not I'm too old. I'm not going back to, to school at this point. I'm not moving. I'm just happy to be where I am. I was planning on getting married soon. He's like, no, you're going, uh, you're going to apply. That's what's going to happen. Here's where you're going to apply. I'm like, you're crazy. I'm not going to do that. And then a couple, I went home and talked to my girlfriend's time. Who's my wife now. And she was like, yeah, you should totally do it. I'm like, I don't, I don't think so. But then a few weeks later, I decided, well, hey, why not I'll give it, give it a shot? Applied, studied all summer for the uh, for the the GMAT um, and doing the applications and all that kind of craziness with no like real prep. I think I prepped two weeks. I, and I literally studied uh, sixteen hours a day uh, for the GMAT. It was all I did for two weeks, uh, which is a miserable experience. And I don't recommend that to to anyone either. Um, Funny story, my commander, actually, I told him that I was going to go back to business school. And he's like, oh, okay, well, where are you going to go? And I told him where I was planning on applying. He's like, okay, like, what are you really going to do? I'm like, no, that's what I'm going to do. He's like, hey, yeah, okay. You know, kind of like, that's cute. Uh, Sure, whatever. Um, But he let me have the time off, I guess, to, to go study, which was important. And I was able to make this, the, uh, the score I needed to get into the school. After that, I had no plan what I was going to do because I had to wait another year uh, to matriculate. So I uh, decided, well, it couldn't be that hard to find a job. Uh, it turns out it is. Um, and if you're wanting to like something on a career, you know, and eventually took an undergrad internship um, at the age of 32 um, at Deloitte in Houston. The first day, the uh, the big presentation was uh, appropriate dress and showing up on time. And I was like, I'm going to crush this. You got this? Yeah. <laughs> I know how to do these things. Uh, so I did that for 10 weeks. And then I did another internship after that, waiting to, to go to B school. And neither of those opportunities um, were conventional or fell on my lap. And I think that's kind of the theme of most of my career stuff, nothing really like happened easily. I never like applied on a website. And I think that's a common misconception a lot of veterans have, a lot of people in general. You apply on a website, wait for them to call you back. And that's just, nobody tells you that's not how it actually works. Yeah. And, and at, that, at that point, had you ever even heard of search funds or entrepreneurship through acquisition or that you could, you could even go and buy and run a small business? No, I mean, I'm first generation college, so... Anything like that, private equity, didn't know what investment banking was. I didn't know any of this stuff. Um, so that thought never crossed my mind until I met a, a, uh, a Marine vet, actually, at um, HBS my first semester. I think it was like the first week of school. Like, what are you going to do? I'm going to be a consultant, you know, whatever, all the like, stuff that you talk about at B school. And he's like, oh, I'm going to go buy a business. I'm like, well, how are you going to do that? You don't have any money. He's like, well, I'm going to I'm gonna go raise like half a million dollars and I'm going to go buy a business. I was like, you're crazy. Nobody's going to give you half a million dollars to go figure out how to buy a business. He's like, no, it's like a thing. I'm like, no, it's not. You're really making stuff up. This sounds way too good to be true. Uh, he ends up being, he's uh, one of my best friends and uh, investor in our deal. I'm on his board and his deal. He ended up searching eventually, but um yeah, it was totally foreign to me. Something I would have never even thought existed. Sounds too good to be true. 
And how did you ultimately make the decision to, to launch a search and, and actually go and acquire a business after, after you initially heard about it? So I, like a lot of people that go to business school, is always trying to hedge. So I was trying to hedge against like my downside. I'm like, well, I need to get a job because I have, I have a new wife and we have a baby on the way. So I, like, I got to get an internship or I can try to get a job. I wanted to move back to Texas from Boston. Um, so I decided to take a summer internship with MetLife, which actually didn't exist. Again, something I kind of networked my way and helped create it. Actually, because I was a vet, the guy who runs the uh, real estate portfolio at MetLife has a son who's in the army and he's like, yeah, we can find something and the guy in the door. So that was a huge blessing. But anyways, um, I learned a ton that summer. Uh, but overall I was like, I cannot see myself doing something like this and sitting at a desk all day, building a new Excel thing, uh, slicing and dicing on pivot tables and stuff like that. And I was like, no, I, so it's, I actually, I moved, my wife was pregnant. I moved to um, Morristown, New Jersey for the summer. I lived in a Catholic, uh, all girls um, college or schools dorm room. They opened to college kids for the summer. So um, there were a lot of rules, most of which I complied with. Um, <laughs> the, and, and but my wife was pregnant back in Boston and all night long, I'd just go home. And all I would do is spend my time reading the Stanford Search Fund primers, looking online and trying to um, learn more about search and getting really excited about, no, this is what I actually want to do. Now, at that point, my wife still thought I was crazy for thinking that, but um, just spent my summer learning about it because you don't get that much exposure first year of business school. Uh, it's at the model, I'd say. And then how did you think about I'm sure you get this question a lot. We get this question all the time. The the difference between, you know, raising a traditional search fund. So, you know, raising the capital up front and then that funds your search for a couple of years versus going the the self-funded or unfunded route. How did you kind of think through that decision as you were pursuing the ETA? Yeah. So um, I think my view on this actually hasn't changed in five years. And that is uh, these are two uh, different but related animals. Uh, and so you need to figure out what kind of hunt you want to be on. But the lifestyle of uh, the entrepreneur on the back end is also very different. So um, the uh, I was not attracted to search so that I could run a mini PE company or so that I could my have a long-term objective in my career of running Porco's for a PE firm. This wasn't attractive to me. I was attracted to it. Obviously, there's financial upside and things like that. But uh, from the lifestyle perspective, being my own boss um, and being able to retain a bigger portion of a, a smaller pie, if you will. And can you talk a little bit just about what your search actually looked like when once you got, got it kicked off? Were you regionally focused? Were you focused on specific industries? Yeah, so the, the problem with my viewpoint is that uh, if you don't have any money, it doesn't matter that you have an opinion uh, and you have a dream because that's all it is, is a dream. And so graduated B school and was living on credit cards to take my first job back in uh, San Antonio, I think, until I got two or three pay paychecks before I 
was back at even. Um, so I had to take a job knowing that I was on the self-funded route. I had to take a job uh, to pay the bills uh, until I could figure out how to do that. And uh, one of the, uh, one of the guys uh, who helped me through the application process and thing like that, things like that for B school. Also, he was two years ahead of me. He went to texting and all. So he wanted to, um, to do a sort of self-funded search as well. Similar problem set though. Hey, we, neither of us have a ton of money. Um, and we both wanted to be geographically focused. So I was living in San Antonio. Um, Travis was living in Austin and we were trying to come up with ways to extend the runway for each of us through a partnership because there's only so many fish in those ponds that you're, that you can fish in and you we didn't have that much money. So eventually you're going to run out. How can we do this? So we decided to partner up and do a partner self-funded search, which you don't see a ton of, um, but we did it. And uh, we were looking in San Antonio, Austin, I'd say about a hundred mile radius around each of those, not in construction, not oil and gas. So, it's, so you had a, at least at least you knew where you weren't going to be looking from both an industry and a geography perspective. Yeah, I mean, in theory, but yeah. I don't live in San Antonio anymore, and I'm in the oil and gas industry. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, can you just talk about what, what what that actually looked like then? I mean, was it reaching out to a lot of small business owners directly, kind of a proprietary <clears throat> route? Did you do more of a brokered uh, approach? Yeah, I'm not sure. There's a lot of the uh, secret sauce in this like the most people i talk to do the same thing like uh well i don't know enough so i need reps and the quickest way to get reps is go to brokers and start getting deal flow so that's what we did we we went to the broker route travis had his uh his first child went on paternity leave and then two weeks later started searching for us full time and i was kind of moonlighting uh focused on brokers with you know the game plan of a few months later after we established all those relationships got deal flow in the door then we would transition to proprietary methods and we had already started working some of that out as far as how we thought about proprietary outreach but um we never actually made it to that so how long into your search was it before you found the business you ultimately acquired six weeks six weeks wow that that might that might be a record from from what I heard. It's it's a statistical uh, outlier, and I would love to tell you that Aaron and Travis are smarter than everybody else, and that's the reason it happened. I that's don't the secret that. sauce, right? It's the, it's, I mean, working hard, I think, uh, obviously has a lot to do with success in life uh, over the long term and the short term, for that matter. But um, we, we were totally blessed that we had this opportunity fall in our lap. Um, we did. We had the right inputs. We had a good game plan. We didn't waste time. We were ready. To, we didn't spend the first three weeks of the search getting everything set up. We spent seven, nine months on the front end before we searched, getting uh, everything set up, all the website, all the stuff you have to do, CRM system, um, drip campaign, all the like things. And so we uh, we did hit the ground. You know, we were strong out of, out of the blocks. I guess as you say, as you would say. And so was was uh, the business you ultimately acquired was that was that the first LOI no. you, you put submitted? <clears throat> no, we submitted. Well, yes, we submitted two IOIs, and on this one we went straight to LOI. 
So we, we were IOI on a business in San Antonio. It was a solid business. Looking back now, I don't think it would have matched our skill sets very well. And we may have done perfectly fine with it, but it was not as good a match as the business that we end up operating. Um, and we got second place in that one. So we weren't learned what it's like to go out to eat with the, the owners and then tell you like how much they like you and then tell you no. Uh, so we got to experience some of that heartbreak before we even fully launched um, the full-time search. And then we, well, you had, you had to have the full searcher experience. It, I mean, we were, yeah, we were, we were pretty excited and it just didn't work out. So that's life. Um, we were trying to get to know pretty quick. We, we went IOI on one other business and realized very quickly, Hey, this guy's like 45 and his expectations are just, nuts i mean he wants to be compensated for all the upside in the business right now like let's, there's nothing left to take then so um that did, that died pretty quick and actually we we networked with uh i say we travis was running the search full-time and he had talked to a broker who liked our background as vets and said hey you know really uh i know this guy who has this uh business for sale that's really cool uh, it's out in Midland. Uh, you guys should take a look at it and just check it out. So Travis and I have a call at the end of the day, right? And he's telling me about uh, businesses that he's you know, brokers he's talked to today and all this kind of stuff. And he mentioned that, and I was like, okay, well, what kind of business is it? He's like it's an aviation company. I was like, what? Well, I know something about aviation, so maybe we should look at it. Yeah, it's in Midland. I'm like, yeah, but we 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 got to at least look at it. I mean, let's take a look at it. Let's take a peek. And then uh, that was the end of June. Had a call the next day. Oh, the next week, I guess. I kept annoying Travis about, like, you got to set this up. You got to set this up. We had a call. We hung up from the call, put together the LOI, and sent it over that night. Two days later, I had another LOI. And what, what, what did the diligence process look like? So it's interesting, right? You, uh, you're coming in, and you need to convey that you know what you're doing but you actually don't know what you're doing. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, this is how we invoice. You're like, Oh, cool. I never thought about that. I mean, I'm like somebody did that for me at my last company. You're like, Oh, let me see. Yeah. Take notes. I think that makes sense. And then you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what about this? And so try to put together your checklist and look all professional and then go home. It's like, what's going on here. I will say though, that the first time we came to the business, which was after uh, LOI and it was diligence, we pulled up to it. And so the business is seven miles south of Midland, Texas. Midland, Texas is in the middle of nowhere. And then we're seven miles south from the middle of nowhere. So we regularly see rattlesnakes, coyotes here on the premise. I mean, it's just tarantulas. I mean, it's just how it is. Um, But I do remember pulling up thinking, I... I don't think I signed up for this. Actually, this is not. This isn't my jam, man. Like, I'm <laughs> in my brother's shirts that I'm wearing right now back at the office, and I like my office. It has this nice view of downtown, or not downtown, but the uh, uh, the quarry across from from it. You know, I'm on like this story. I'm, I don't know about this, man. This uh, wasn't this wasn't your glorious vision of being a CEO. <laughs> Yeah, so exactly. And what's interesting, you asked me earlier about the uh, the difference of funded, self-funded, and I was mentioning if you do different stuff. So at a the, the size company you end up buying most times if you're self-funded, 
uh, guess what you're doing? You're taking out the trash. I mean, you know why? Because you can't afford to pay somebody else to take the trash out. So you better like doing stuff like that. There's no middle management. I mean, you're it. I mowed the yard. I we we end up buying this airport that we operate out of, um, which is a whole other story. Like, I guess that was about ten months into the whole adventure. I have to go mow it with the tractor and the bush hog. You know? I still kind of do it sometimes, but I mean, that's just what you have to do in these small businesses. I, I think mentally, I was not prepared for that the first time we arrived, though. And how can you talk a little about the relationship with the seller? And do you think, I mean, given your both military background, but then also, you know, obviously pilot background, did you think that helped quite a bit in those discussions? Yeah, I think it helped because I think it gave them, first off, they're patriotic people. So I think they liked that we were veterans. Um, I mean, they're the ones that are like buying, you know, a table of tickets at the local veteran fundraiser kind of thing. And so I, I do believe that helped. I also think having aviation experience helped put them at ease. It probably helped us, you know, put them at ease enough to, to get a seller note inserted in the cap structure. But, um, yeah, I think it helped overall. The, the relationship with them um, was short-lived. And you, did, you, did you end up, did they stay on at all post-acquisition? Or did that transition pretty quickly? We... Um, we structured it to where they had a one-year uh, commitment to the organization and up to six months of that could be employment. So we kind of went into it with, and we were like, no, we need them for six months on this. And our attorney was like, yeah, what if you kind of like want to not see them anymore after 60 days? How? So we kind of structured it like that and we let them go about nine days in. And then we never called them. We never called them once for consulting. Yeah, I, I think generally, I think a lot, a lot of searchers we we work with are, are surprised at how how quickly uh, that that transition ends up happening. You know, there's sometimes a, a feeling like they, you know that they may want more support than than ultimately they do post acquisition. Yeah, there's you certainly need a transition because there's a ton of uh, tribal knowledge in an organization. The size and it's not written down. There's not processes. And you got to know that the Piggly Wiggly isn't the same thing as the Wiggly Piggly or whatever. I mean, we had all sorts of like stamps that meant different stuff on paper. And it's like wingdings or something, uh, you know, on the uh, the way stuff's typed. And there's all sorts of stuff to learn by that. It's it, At least in our business, it wasn't hard. It just took us some time. Yeah. And, and what did you see in the business? I mean, obviously... It's an aviation business, so you, you had some experience sort of operationally. But w- what was it that was so attractive to you uh, and that kind of got you over the hump that this was, this was the deal that you wanted to do? Yeah, I think that's interesting you say got you over the hump because I don't think there's any slam dunk. I mean, it, we've invested I'm, in I'm still, I'm still waiting for one. I've never seen We've invested one. <laughs> in four deals also, and like ne- never have we seen a deal where we're like, Dude, this is, you're totally going to get it, right? So we saw, hey, there's uh, there's good uh, recurring revenues here. There is a service that provides value. There's stability in the customer base. I mean, as stable as, as it could be for you know oil and gas firms. But the underlying credit of the customers was good. And then um, the uh, since we are in a oil and gas business, Really need to check about the correlation 
of revenue and commodity prices. And what we found was there wasn't any. So when we said we don't want to be in only gas constructions because we you can't you can't LBO on that kind of risks and and lever up and take that much debt when you the commodity prices just go against you. There's nothing you can do. Nobody understands it. If you do, you'll go get a PhD in it. But um, there's uh, there was no correlation really in this business once we dug into it. it at first glance, you're like, nope, not looking at it. <clears throat> and that was what happened. Uh, we actually were the only pursuers of this business because other people, P firms and stuff, looked at it and said, they just looked at the top page and said, drones, bye. Yeah. And, and what, what, why was that? What's, what's sort of the nature of the business? Because that, that is something we see a lot, right? Where businesses that have a lot of commodity and market exposure end up that even if it's a, a service, they're not actually, you know, directly involved with the commodity can get whipsawed. So, so what was it about the business that, that you know, prevents that? Um, so if you're, I'm not an oil and gas expert. So let me put it as simple as my, uh, country mine can do can do here, and if you go drill a well, it's going to cost you X million dollars. Could be three million, ten million dollars, whatever it is. Okay, you're only gonna make that decision if the commodity price forecast looks good, um, and then so if you are attached to the drilling portion of the business and you're a service provider to them, you're gonna get whipsawed because it's a rational decision that the producer. The, the the exploration firm is going to say nope, not going to do it. Now, once you are already operating the well, now we're talking about margin costs, right? Like, how much does it cost to keep the well running and to uh, produce a barrel of oil? So that that changes some of the calculus, and that's the side that that we are on, where we're helping. Once we have nothing to do with drilling at all, and we're all about helping them uh, from an environmental standpoint on the operating side. And can you talk a little more to that? Like what, what, what does the business actually do? Um, you know, who, who are the customers? How do you get paid? Yeah. So, uh, we get paid in cash. Um, <laughs> no, we, uh, the, the business is, uh, our mission is to be our customers, most trusted leak detection service. Um, so we go out, we fly a bunch of airplanes, and we look for leaks and issues they have. And those happen more often than one might imagine. And even if they don't, you if you're the producer, you want to know they're not happening, right? And so do you basically have recurring contracts? with? So there's no contracts because that, it's an industry that works on MSAs. So we do have MSAs, but um, again, back to the commodity risk nature of the business, they're not going to lock in a contract when they can't lock in the underlying price of, of, of what they're selling. So uh, nobody has any contracts other than MSA with a cancellation clause. But just because you have an MSA doesn't mean they buy anything from it. They can say, great, yeah, we have an MSA. Mm -hmm. Cool. And how how did you get comfortable with that indulgence? Just just was it was in speaking with customers, understanding kind of the quality and reputation of the business? Yeah, I mean, for the first like step in diligence was to look at the correlation between commodity prices. We knew when there was dips and see did revenue go up or down? Did customers churn off or did they not? And so it's really basic on that. Well, they didn't. I mean, there must be something going on here that makes this um, a stickier. Uh, 
business. And then, yes, customer interviews. Now, I think on the buy side, you think, well, I got to talk to the customers. But if you put yourself in the the, uh, the shoes of the seller, I mean, if you called me and you wanted to buy our business, Alex, and you want to talk to my customer, I would say, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> and what are you going to say anyway? So why don't we talk more about that? And so we didn't get to talk to customers until, gosh, I think it was a week or two before we closed. I mean, it was like super confirmatory at that point because, but I mean, again, all the indications from the data were that it was, it was good. We just needed that last little warm fuzzy of, okay. Yeah. They, when you talk to them, they're not like, Oh yeah. I mean, we're still paying now. What are we, <laughs> you know, we did not get one of those. And what we got was, Oh yeah. You guys help us out a ton. Uh, you're always there for us. It's all positive stuff from the customers we talk to. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. And, and that, that's one thing where, you know, different, different types of businesses, different levels of customer concentration, Obviously, the sooner you can talk to get the customer point of view, the better. But certainly there are lots of businesses where it is, as you said, it's down to the wire and it's it's really more of a confirmatory immediately prior to signing. So it sounds like that was pretty consistent with your experience there. Yeah. And I don't know, like the depending on who's listening to this and, and maybe we can break that down a little bit. If you're selling a business, I don't want you to and you're going to buy my business house. I don't want you to come talk to my customer and tell them I'm selling. What if they think I don't? I really like Aaron. I don't know about somebody else. Like maybe we have risk here. Maybe this is a good time to start diversifying our, our supplier base. Maybe this just reminds me that, yeah, I, we supply chain has been saying we need to look for some more providers and this is a good opportunity now. So it's totally rational from the seller side. And it's hard to see that on the buy side because the stress is so high. And obviously, there are a lot, lot of different approaches to to how you how you structure customer calls, even how you approach them, right? Uh, and 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 what you're what what you're sharing as a buyer, and whether it's you know, with the seller or not. Uh, so there, yeah, so, that, so that's interesting. We actually the only thing we were able to do was give the seller a script and be on the call while she called them. Which is super weird. She's like, oh, hey. so, so so you were you you were just listening. You were you were uh, you were actually talking to the customers. Yeah, we're just on the phone. She's like, hey, John, how you doing? Good. Well, I'm just kind of trying to get some feedback from people on how stuff's going. And <laughs> do you like us still? You know, it's yeah, I like you. You know, it's like okay, next call. Next call. <laughs> That's great. So, so once you actually, you know, signed, closed, and then stepped into to you know actually operating and running the business, anything that was a big surprise for you, either positive or negative, versus what you what you thought or expected in, in diligence. A lot of big surprises. Uh, I'll go off the top of my head. Um, we closed on a bad weather day, and this business didn't fly for the first three days, and I was panicking. I was like, Does this, do these planes actually get in the air? I mean, what is going on? The weather's always bad. We're going to make our loan payment. What's going on? Um, so that was like right out of the gate. Uh, I was surprised by the level of the lack of uh, technology in the company. So the level of uh, pen and paper, one example would be uh, they had the cheapest accounting system ever, which was miserable and I couldn't get away from it fast enough. But then we had a backup to that, which was you had to put everything in a green ledger, if you remember what that is. 
And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. She's like, that's what we do. I'm like, no, I'm sorry. Like, I'll just, I'm going to make a copy of the file and like put it in the cloud or something. <laughs> I'm, not gonna, I'm not doing a green ledger. Um, we were surprised actually when we got on board that all of the uh, critical employees were planning to quit within the next two months. So that was fun. Um, trying to navigate just, through that. Just on that, because th- th- that is not the first time that we, we've ever heard that. Did, were you able to get access to the employees beforehand during diligence or not? Very little. And we already knew one of the, the like business managers was leaving and that was fine. And then there was one other critical employee that we had identified and he's super street smart. So we show up and he's like, yes. We're like, yeah, we're here to ask you some questions about her. He's like, and who are you? I'm like, well, we're Aaron and Travis. We're with, uh, you know, consulting company or, you know, stuff. I'm like doing stuff, taxes. I don't know. Like we were not prepared. And it, it, fundamentally, I mean, it's not who we are to lie. It was, it was a very weird situation because we had told the seller, we won't disclose what, what we're talking about. And so then, you know, he's just like, Oh, okay. Interesting. And so that was uh, unexpected. I would say. I don't know what you're, you're, uh, yeah. Just, and, 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 and with, with, with the employees, when you, when you learned, uh, post acquisition that, that a lot wanted to leave, how did you, how did you sort of handle that? How did you approach that? Try to figure out why some we couldn't fix some were leaving for family reasons or whatever. And then some we, um, fixed with a combination of, um, attempting to build relational goodwill and money. I mean, I, I don't think that's a good way to go into it, but, and most, about 50% of the people I know get held hostage on day one yeah. uh, monetarily. So you're already in a uh, weak negotiating position going in. And so it was pretty challenging. What we did was the first two weeks, we, we identified all of the, like, overhead kind of people and took them to eat at night by themselves, not a group. We want to talk to you. We want to hear your thoughts so we can at least make them feel, you know, like they were heard and okay, I might give these guys a chance. It costs you uh, $60 to go get pizza or wings or something. And it's money well spent for sure. Yeah. And then how, how did you manage? I assume there was some turnover, as you said. I mean, did you immediately start, kind of recruiting and, and ramping up on, on the, on the new hiring side. So we, on our pilot side, we have a lot of turnover programmed already. So they kind of already were dealing with that. Um, and so uh, we just kind of continued what they were doing uh, on the, um, the overhead component. One of the challenges, again, back to the tribal knowledge is not, I need somebody else to get in here. It's, I need what is in your head and I I need you to help me write it down in a way I can understand. So everything this company did was on Microsoft Word documents and in somebody's head. And they could tell you that this is how that would happen and all this. It wasn't, I mean, now we're on a database and stuff like this, but it wasn't even on a spreadsheet where you could look at it. So we had to spend a lot of time. Like we know, we knew um, our ops manager was leaving. 
Um, we kind of worked out an extension for him, made it worth his while to stay, gave him a sweetheart deal. You don't want to work as much. Okay, we'll work you part time, you know, whatever, so that we could get really comfortable with the core knowledge of the business. And that ultimately happened, but it was a lot of work getting there. And what did that look like in practicality? Was that literally you you would sit down with each of the key employees and the ops manager before you left with a laptop and just try to t- take as many notes as you could? Or what, what did that actually look like in, 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 in practice? So we were able to keep our maintenance uh, leader. Well, we actually promoted him right off the bat and kept him. Uh, and then on the um, accounting, like bookkeeping side, I just hopped in and learned how to do everything myself and stayed up till two in the morning building invoices myself. And I talked to some people and they're like, yeah, you should pay somebody else to do it. I'm like, but you can't pay somebody else to do something you don't know how to do. I mean, it, now we have people that help us out and they do a great job. We pay them, but I had to teach them and I didn't know what to teach them until I learned like how you do it. And when your people are saying this is a miserable process and you don't know the process, you don't know the first thing about it. You can't fix it and make it better. So I think that's a long-term setup for for churning people. Uh, and then on the ops side, I mean, we literally would like have this week take these pieces of paper and write down your notes on. And then we're going to have a one-hour meeting. And me and Travis like have our laptops out. We're like, okay, start with this one. Go. <laughs> and we're just like put it in, you know, Excel and whatever. And then we, you know, after you know, he's done and he's tired of talking to us, then we're like talking to each other, try to organize it to where we can make it useful later. And we also uh, very quickly identified we need a database to manage this. And I thought about building it on my own and then realized I actually don't know how to do that. And it was going to be a lot of work to learn. And so let's just go pay somebody to build us a database to start organizing this stuff. Because the one of the reasons that the seller was selling the business was, Everything was paper and pencil and it wasn't scalable. So they had grown to the part where the duct tape holding everything together just was busting at this point. So all of all the uh, platform systems had to be redone, basically. And so did you did you do that right off the bat? Was that literally as soon as you stepped in in that in that first first few months or or, or what did that look like? Did I do what? Start like upgrading the systems and. And actually building out the database. I mean, obviously, you were trying to you know suck out all the knowledge you could and really understand. But but when you actually you know switching to a database and switching some of the processes, yeah. So uh, I would say the first is learn how it's done now, very simply. Second, document how it's done now. Third, figure out how to optimize or at least make a step change. If, even if it's not optimal, it'll be better. So that's what that's what we did. I mean, I, I got in and I did invoicing and literally stayed up. Till two in the morning, days on end, doing invoicing, not fun, learning how to do it. Later, I was able to suck, I reduced the uh, process by 80%. But I had to, I had to suck it up for a few you, months. You had, to go, you had to go through the learning, right? Yeah. You had to go through it. There's no shortcut. Uh, yeah. On the off side, it was the same thing. We had to learn what the different winging signals, symbols meant. And that the, you know, the donut stamp means this and whatever. And like, you just got to learn it, document it, and then figure out, okay. Yeah, my time in the military, I had seen how uh, the Air Force had used a, a database program to manage scheduling and to do all this stuff. So I, I knew like, 
what really great looked like, which I think is super important um, key for vets is you've seen what a great small team looks like and how it operates. So that piece check. Okay. Now I got to figure out how to transfer these lessons from, you know, whatever I was doing in the military to this. And that's one point where I was able to do that was the database system. And again, I didn't build it. I just, I went on Upwork and I did interviews with 10 people and figured out who could do it. I thought, who did I have enough chemistry to work through whatever issues that we we're going to come come across. And here we are almost three years later, he's still working for us as a contractor. And, and, and I mean, just on that point, as a, as a veteran, anything else from your time, you know, in the Air Force that you found to be particularly helpful in, in, in small business ownership? And then and then on the flip side, you know, areas where you think, you know, you, you had to work harder because you didn't have that exposure or experience uh, in the military. Yeah. So um, on the. Um, I think the people side is the easiest one to find the, the corollaries because for me, I managed pilot training programs for two years. I knew, I, I know, I know, I know how to be, how to develop good training programs, how to run them. And I know how to deal with this specific demographic, which is young pilots for somebody who, you know, like, Travis was a, an army officer, doesn't know, didn't know anything about the pilot, young pilot dynamic, how they think, how they operate, what they, what they're trying to optimize for any of that stuff. Uh, but totally relatable to the guys in maintenance because he helped with the, you know, the maintenance of uh, the vehicles in the army. So similar demographic, you're, you're able to relate to those kind of people. So I would say you can find some similarities uh, just from your you know small team leadership, which most people are getting out and have led small teams, not you know a wing or a battalion or something. And could you talk a little because you know we, we don't talk to a lot of as you said partnered self funded searchers. There, there there aren't there aren't many of you out there. What, what did that look like? How did you end up dividing up responsibilities both before and and after the acquisition? Yeah, so I was working in real estate investing for this and I. Uh, we were in a deal that had gone bad because a partnership agreement kind of went sideways. And I went to with one of the other big investors and we're trying to figure out how we're going to work this out. And he's like, look, man, partnerships are complicated and I'm not trying to get into all of that dynamics. It's super simple, but it really is. I mean, they're, it's simple, right? Like, yeah, I like you. You like me. Let's go into business. Let's do it together. We like to hang out. But um, is that going to be a good relationship and how's it all going to be worked out? Travis and I uh, were not best friends when we went into this. Um, I don't think we're best friends now. We're very close. We talk a lot um, and we trust each other a lot, but we're very different people in a lot of ways, um, but very complimentary. And that's what made it. I would say the common threads that have helped us succeed in our partnership and um, we look for whenever we're investing and people that are partners is is aligned values. And I mean, like what's right and what's wrong? What what are the bright lines you're gonna cross? What are you not? Uh do you believe in fairness as a concept? Or do you do you believe more? Are you more on the justice side? I mean, what how do you think about these things? What about your wife? Like, does your wife 
like my wife? I mean, do they get along? Because that's important because you're really melding two families together. What about your kids? And what's important for that? Like, and how that plays out is Travis is really good about um, protecting his time uh, with his family, uh, in my opinion, much better than I am. I've learned a lot from him in this. So, but it used to drive me nuts at the beginning because I'd be trying to get a hold of him on Saturday. I'd be trying to get a hold of him at 8.30 on Thursday. Not, I had to learn, no, he's put up these lines. He told me his family was important to him from the beginning. We went into this knowing it and that's, that's what he's been true to. His phone's off at eight. He's focused on his family and that's just how it is. And it took me a while to, to kind of learn that one point, but I'd say having the aligned values has helped us in a lot of other tough situations. And one of the things that Travis likes to say and it's really wise is there's no such thing as 50 50. I mean, it's 50 50 on your spreadsheet, right? Like this is how the split's going to be. This is how, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. But somebody, there's nights that Travis works till two in the morning and I go, man, that sucks. I got up. I was in bed at eight. And then there's nights that he's in bed at eight and I'm working and we don't keep track of them and try to true it up later. You got to like, it doesn't work like that. So another good example in our partnership would be our family decided we would move to Midland. We had bought a house in San Antonio. Again, we were searching Austin, San Antonio. We bought a house in San Antonio in February of 2018, found the business in June under LOI in June closed in October. So eight months after my wife has a house for the first time, her first time owning a house, uh, I had to have one when I was single, but it was her first time owning a house. We've been in an apartment in Boston, thousand square feet. We got a 75 pound lab, a wild, crazy boy. You have a house. And now I'm like, they got these sweet apartments over here though. And she's like, I don't know about that, you know? And so if you look at it and you say, well, What's fair? What's 50 50? I mean, my family moved all the way out here. Travis, I got to go home to my family at night, though. Travis, he basically deployed out here. So we worked 12 on, two off for the first 90 days, I think, um, out here because we're a 365 day a year company. So he was never saw his family. Is How do you reconcile between my family moved? His family didn't, but he never saw them. I mean, if you allow stuff like that to, um, if you're not lying on your values, something like that could really start to create some animosity. Well, this is this is crap, man. Like, I'm working so much harder than Travis is. Yeah, today. <laughs> like, wait till next week. Uh, it'll be different then. So, um, yeah, just the 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 alignment. And the other thing I say is like documenting everything. Just is is a huge deal. So I mean, we we meticulously documented and thought through a lot of stuff. I'm sure we missed some contingencies, but Hey, we're, we're sharing this partnership thing. So going back, we had our uh, partnership between Austin and San Antonio so we could elongate the runway. Right. So what if we're three months into the, into the deal and Travis finds a business in Austin, we close on the business. I mean, he didn't really need me. Like I didn't do anything. He would have found that even if it wasn't for me. So should he get more equity? In that, I think it's easy to say yes. Okay, well, then I'm going to go do something else. And then we're going to be 50, I'm going to go search. I'm going to find a business where we're 50-50. Well, now we're not 
And that's called having a boss, not a partner, in my opinion. So we always we had plans even before we started that. Like how in a situation like that, how would we get back to even like 50-50 on the cap table kind of thing? You can't value all the all the other stuff moving and who has to work at 2 a.m. But the desire to have things equal, I think, has has paid um, has paid off for us. Yeah, I think no, I think that, I think that's great advice on and where, where we've seen partnerships work really well in in a search and a you know ownership context. I agree. It's it's alignment of values. It's the complementary capabilities you mentioned, but then it's also making sure that 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 you've had all those conversations up front. As you said, you're never going to cover every contingency, but at least to have you know, thought through a lot of those different ones so that it just reduces the friction for what's in many cases, uh, you know, five, 10, 15 year partnership or, or longer. Right. One other thing I would say that's super important to us is communication. So, um, you know, if you're married, you got to talk to your husband or wife to maintain that relationship. Partnership is the same way. I mean, especially you divide all these tasks up and maybe you have a couple things that are overlooked overlapping but how are you going to make sure that the decision you're making that's kind of strategic at least operational uh level decision um is in line with them and we talk twice a day we have appointments on each other's calendar we're going to talk we keep a list sometimes we go yeah i got that much you got anything no i got anything and then we move on with our lives but sometimes we gotta hash some stuff out over a couple days and we don't make big decisions without talking. It's, it's interesting because last week, this week, earlier this week, somebody told Travis in the company that, yeah, Aaron said to do this. And he called me at our next call. And he's like, so I heard this and I thought, that doesn't sound like my what my partner would do. I and mean, we didn't know this three years now, right? So we're pretty, I know... Today, he presented a problem with me. I was like, I haven't told you what I think. He goes, I already know what you think. <laughs> what do I do? At course A. I'm like, yeah, exactly. Let's do that. So um, the alignment has just helped. And it helps in the organization, too. Like, yep, I'm not going to touch that. Because nobody wants two bosses. They want to answer now. But they want two bosses. Those things come together. Yeah. And and how just very practically, how, how did you divide up responsibilities or how have you divided up responsibilities? And has that changed over time at the company? So initially, uh, when you do when you do an SBA deal, you're joint and several. And what that means is uh, you might as well just done it by yourself as far as the liability is concerned. So uh, from and what does that mean? Practically, it means if your partner gets hit by a bus you better know how to do whatever they were doing or <laughs> you're screwed. Uh, especially like in those first days when you have a ton of risks. So initially, I mean, we did everything together, almost everything. There's very few things we didn't do together for the first hundred days. We kept a kind of a journal, which is kind of fun to go back and read now, like some of the random uh, cat stories and things like that, that we told in the journal, but, to, to pass knowledge back and forth on, on different tasks. And then over time, slowly started to say, no, like this is your lane. Like, I just want to get out of it. So now I do all our uh, pilot recruiting or all our HR stuff, really. I do all our accounting and finance work and I do all of our, um, well, and all of our admin and then kind of pilot management. And I would 
separate that from Travis. He does op- overseas operations, which seems like pilot management. It's really like, how do you pilot management being, how does the pilot do their skills and stuff like that? And then the operations being, what are they doing? Like, what are we accomplishing here? Um, and maintenance and sales. So anything that's external facing, they call, I'll just get rid of this. Travis will get back to them, which was tough. I mean, it was, I would say, sorry, I just thought of this as, as I'm talking about it. Initially, um, you're used to being a company commander, in my case, a flight commander, and you're used to being the guy. And now you have a partner and like, you're not really the guy. I mean, you're one of the guys, right? So I was used to like, we're in a real estate company, highly, you know, a reputable company in town, people, you know, I got to go out to dinners and talk to people and try to do deals. And now all of a sudden, nobody wants to talk to me outside this company. And I don't even get the chance to. And at first, like, I was a little, I was a little upset about it. I mean, I was holding it back, right? I was trying not to let it affect me, but it was kind of bugging me. At the same time, Travis is over there and he's like, I've always been the guy. And, you know, you go talk to the pilots and you're like the guy that stands up and you're like the most experienced pilot in the company. So you're the one that's like up there and I'm kind of like in the back and that's weird for me. And we had to kind of talk through that <laughs> to figure out like, actually, no, we both feel the same and that's okay. It's just different than we thought. Now it's not a problem. It was like a, you know, first three months kind of problem. But again, back to the values. And we, we always thought that we would win more together. We were more than 200%, I guess. And related to that, I mean, it's always interesting to hear uh, searchers who stepped in the CEO seat. How, how long was it? And I realize you're probably learning something new every day, so that, that, that never ends. But, but how long was it before you really felt like this was your business and you, you kind of had your arms around it? 60 days. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that Travis knew that I didn't know, but I would say as a team, 60 days. Mm-hmm. And did that go through the normal progression of kind of terror slash? Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, like the fear in that those first days is, I mean, everything is about to get you. And like, guess what? You're not in the loop. So nobody's coming to tell you any of stuff. You just overhear conversation. What? What just happened? Oh, my gosh. You're like, they're just talking like they normally talk. This is just another day. But they didn't tell you that in diligence. Uh, so this is your first time to hear about it. And. It just took a while to to get through that phase. And we had some other interesting things that, that happened. So about two weeks into um, operating, we discovered, yeah, maybe three weeks, we started to get calls from uh, customers saying, we're not paying your bills. Well, why are you not paying our bills? Because you're, uh, we got to notice your insurance was canceled. And what do you mean it was canceled? I didn't cancel it. The uh, former owner had canceled our insurance. Um, now we had other policies in place at closing, but we were trying to transition through this again. The same reason we didn't want to call somebody and be like, "Hey," or she didn't want to let us call our customers. We don't want to call our customers on day one be like, Hey, everything's different now. Here's a new insurance sir. We want to just let things go. And it's like, yeah, we bought this business a hundred days ago and 
Has anything changed? Oh, everything's good. Okay, well, yeah, nothing's going to change. I mean, from the customer perspective, that got totally wrecked. So we spent a lot of time doing damage control on that. Uh, by the way, she pocketed the refund. Uh, and then she presents us with a fuel bill that was on one and a half fuel bills that were unpaid. It, real quick on that, if you don't mind my asking, were you able to get that all trued up in, in the escrow? And No. No. What are you going to do about it? The answer is you're not going to do anything about it. You're going to come to work. You're going to go home and you're going to punch your pillow or whatever you do at home, go for a run, whatever. And you're going to come to work the next day and you're going to have a smile on your face because you have to, because you really don't have any choice because you don't know anything about this business. You don't, I mean, you haven't even been through a month. You haven't even seen a full calendar month. You're going to go home and you're going to come back happy about it and, and just dying inside. But hey, how are you today? It's so good to see you. You just stole $60,000 from me, but it's so good to see you. Um, yeah, we end up in a lawsuit and a bunch of stuff. The, we end up settling, but um, yeah, it was a mess, uh, but not the way you want it to happen. And I have a friend who, the same thing in his operating, but his was over like five grand. And I was, he's like, what am I going to do? I'm like, nothing. You're going to shut up. So what you're going to do. You're going to go home, cool down, and tomorrow you're going to come to work and keep working. That's what you're going to do because it's your only choice, dude. You're, you, when you think about enterprise value and how much enterprise value you can destroy by not knowing that the ABC is actually CBA and you just lost a customer because of it. I mean, you, you, the time to fight is later, not when you're completely at a disadvantage informationally. No, I, I really do appreciate the candor on that because that happens a shockingly high percentage of the time. And it's something that, in my view, is not talked about enough because I think people either try to sweep it under the rug or, or try to handle it on their own. But that's exactly right. And especially in those first few weeks post-acquisition, as you said, you're, you're in such a precarious position as you're transitioning the business you, you, you know, I, I, I like your memory. You just have to, even if you're dying inside, you have to come in with a smile on your face, right? Yeah, we, we did it for months, uh, three months until we let them go. You know, the, uh, the caveat to this is sometimes it's not intentional. Like, they may not even have the intentionality to like screw you out a bunch of money and steal your money or something. Uh, they just, you're dealing with a seller who, in all likelihood who sold a business one time now in their life. And they had their attorney who was their divorce attorney or their whatever look at it. And he didn't look at it good enough. And he didn't explain to them what it was or their CPA didn't tell them one implication. And their expectation in their mind does not match reality right now. And you're going off of reality and what's documented because of your background and how important it is to document everything. And that's not who they are. And that's not how they got where they were. And they're not going to change overnight. So I honestly don't think most of them believe they're doing something wrong. I think it was how it was always going to go down in their head and it just didn't actually make it on the paper to get into the negotiation. Yep. A hundred percent. Anyway, as you said, even in cases where there's no, there's no ill intent in many cases, right? It's just, this is, this is the first time they have ever sold a business in many cases and understanding the networking capital peg and what that means about who's paying that invoice versus who, you know, who, whose pocket that's coming out of is not, as you said, 
even in the absence of ill intent, that, that happens all the time. No, so I, look, I re- re- appreciate the, the candor on that. So stepping back now, having been been in the in the role for as long as you have, um, and obviously, you know, tremendous what you've done in terms of you know transitioning the business, growing the business. What what recommendations do you have for veterans who are either very early in a search or just even considering? searching and, and, you know, ultimately stepping into the ownership and CEO seat of, of a small business? Yeah. I mean, the first thing is to figure out what you want to do. So you started the same way I always start when I, we take a lot of calls from veterans. We want to help mentor them and things like that. And um, I always start out with the self-funded versus funded. I mean, figure out what you want to be. Why are you doing this? Why are you interested in it? If you're interested in it, and there's no wrong answer, by the way, just be honest with yourself. Because if you want to be the guy or the gal in charge and um, not worry about the waterfall, then you should figure out how you can do a self-funded type search. And that may not be right now. And it may be waiting until you financially um, get to a better position. But Figure out what it is, how your life, how you want your life to look on the daily. No, I think that's I think that's great advice, and and that is very similar to what we say, right? There, there's no there's no right answer on this. They're they're similar, but but there are you know some significant differences in terms of as you said, both both during a search and then once you're actually stepping into the the ownership role. So that's the great. other thing I'd say is it's not easy. I mean, I have a lot of friends that are searching right now. It's competitive out there. Um, everything's expensive right now, everywhere. Um, it's, it's not easy. The search though is not the end of challenging times. It's not like, well, I find the business and I become the CEO and my life is just like, it's great. And I don't have any challenges in my life anymore. And I just, now I'm a CEO. So I made it, I guess. Uh, that's not it at all. I mean, mowing your own yard, driving a tractor, doing whatever it is, um, dealing with things you've never seen before, HR things that you have no you have no idea about the legalities of it. You're totally at a disadvantage there. Um, there's so many challenges on the operating side too that are just different. So I think the the searching thing, like while it was um, short lived for us, I have a lot of friends who have gone through much longer searches and I have been their sounding board when they wanted to quit on a lot of different occasions or, you know, I think I'm going to go do this. I'm like, that's not who you are. Like my, it's just not who you are. So don't go do it. Is my advice. Well, Aaron really do appreciate your, your taking the time today to, uh, to share, to share your story and would love, would love to check in with you uh, in, in a couple of years and, and hear how, uh, how everything's progressing with the business. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to talk to you. It's uh, We're coming up on our third anniversary here, and um, this is great what you're doing out there, uh, helping veterans figure out how to navigate their way in uh, something there's not really a defined path for, I would say, especially for veterans. You can go work at Amazon at the Amazon uh, recruitment program for veterans and go go that way. This is definitely not it, but you're helping provide a resource for a lot of people. We're more than happy. Obviously, I want to keep in touch with you, Alex. We're more than happy to um, be a sounding board to help advise people, uh, veterans that are out there um, looking to do this. And, uh, you know, 
our sometimes advice is worth what you pay for it, but uh, we're more than happy to be a resource. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Aaron Kinsey, uh, Aaron at AmericanPatrols.com is my email. If anybody wants to reach me and, and talk about anything, search or otherwise. No, I really appreciate that. We we never we never want to volunteer <laughs> someone else's time, but but I have to say, I'm sure you've seen it. This is it. Truly, is search really is a community, and even then, veteran search within that. You know, I, I've never found a single veteran involved in this space, whether an investor, an active searcher, an owner like you today, who who wasn't willing to 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 get on a call uh, and and you know help out another veteran who's interested in it. So so re- really do appreciate that offer. Yeah, so everybody helped us get here. You know, people took our calls, and that's the way you. Uh, that's the way you pay it forward, and it's a small community. Got to help each other out. We got a lot in common. Yeah. All right, Aaron. Well, thank thank you again for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Doug. Have a good day. Good weekend. If you are interested in learning more about entrepreneurship through acquisition and search funds or small business ownership more broadly, please reach out. You can find us at www.searchacquire.org or email me, Alex Mears, at info at searchacquire.org. Thanks for listening, and please share with any prospective entrepreneurs who you think could benefit.